All right, chapter 9, verse 11 is where we are. So, Christ is an eternal priest after the order of Melchizedek. He mediates a better covenant, the new covenant, in which there is forgiveness of sins, not reminder of sins. Chapter 9, we saw how the old covenant worship was set up with the, the tabernacle there. And now, verse, so again, if we see in verse 9, the sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the conscience of the worshiper. If you look the next uh, over next chapter 10 verses 3 and 4, but in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. So the old system is intended to create a longing for ultimate fulfillment, pointing toward a day of reformation and ultimate salvation. This is why we need a new priest to mediate a new covenant, offering up a new sacrifice to give us a new birth. Well, tell me more about this. I will. Verse 11. New covenant worship fulfills the shadows. It's going to show now how this, this new covenant by a better priest fulfills all of the shadows of the old covenant. Verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come. I love that. The good things that have come. He's the high priest of them. Then through the greater and more perfect tent, the eternal tabernacle in heaven, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places. Once for all. Not by the means of blood of bulls and calves, but by the means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. There is an eternal priest who offers up a final sacrifice, and Jesus then goes into the tabernacle of heaven. Remember the one that the Lord showed Moses? Well, that's where, the, uh, where He's gone to now. He's no longer operating in the shadows, but now in substance. Christ has gone within the veil. He is there as the anchor of our soul, having offered that final sacrifice. And now, by grace, He is calling us through faith to come unto Him. Verse 13. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, meaning if all that stuff He did under the old covenant made you ritually clean... How much more, verse 14, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? There's there's a lot to see here. The shed blood of God's Son is sufficient to purge our sins completely. And did you notice who's, who's present here in verse 14? We see the Son, the blood of Christ, the eternal Spirit, the Holy Spirit. He offers Himself without blemish to God the Father. Jesus, by the Holy Spirit, offers Himself to the Father. Father, take me instead of them. Pour out Your wrath on me instead of them. He sheds His blood in our place. He was a substitute. 
He was the atonement for us. That's where we get the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. Jesus' blood covers the sins of all those who trust in Him. Not the sins of those who trust in something else. So if you trust in something other than Jesus for your salvation, you trust in yourself, your good works, the old covenant, um, yeah, the, the, the commands of, of Allah through, through Muhammad or whatever it may be, you trust in that, God's wrath abides on you. But if you're in Christ, His righteousness is your covering and the wrath has been paid in full. He was the substitute for all those who will trust in Him. He offered Himself without blemish, that same idea of perfection that we talked about. So the, and do you notice here the aim? To purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Let your conscience be alleviated of all of its guilt. So when, when you sin, it is a serious thing. Confess it to the Lord and thank Him for the forgiveness that is in Christ. And then you walk in forgiveness. You repent and you walk in forgiveness. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ because He was condemned in our place. And what that does is that sets you free to serve the living God. You, if you are in Christ... Your debt has been paid in full. And now you are free to serve God. You're free because now the most important thing has been taken care of. What happens to you when you die is taken care of. And not only that, but what happens now in this life, you walk in freedom with the promise that I am with you always to the very end of the age. So the Holy Spirit now um, accompanies and empowers us with the presence of Christ to live for Him, free to serve Him, not fearing what happens on the other side of death because it's already taken care of. And that frees you to not live for this world. It frees you to say, what's the worst thing they can do to me? Kill me? Then I go to be with Jesus. It's already taken care of. You are absolutely free to serve God with all of your life. You don't want to live for this world. It's passing away. You don't want to waste your life accumulating gold. The streets of heaven are going to be paved with gold. You'll have plenty of it. You don't need that. You don't need applause from everybody and waste your life trying to get that because you already have the applause of the Father because He loves the Son. And in Him, you're fully accepted. You're free from passing pleasures of sin because there is a greater abiding pleasure of knowing God and being with Him forever. You are free to not waste your lives and to now risk your lives for the glory of God of making the gospel go to places where people haven't heard this yet. Brothers and sisters, you are poised in this, this particular time in history, in this city, to reach the nations, to reach people who have never heard and you know what? Because of the work of Christ, you are free to do it. Do it. Do it. The worst thing they can do is kill you. That's, and then what? You get Jesus. I'm not saying being reckless and stupid, but don't be stupid either. Don't, 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 
listen to the temptations that woo you back to this world, that call you to set up shop here. We have, we have a city whose architect and builder is God, and we're pressing on there. It's taken care of. Conscience is clean. Set free to serve the living God. Therefore, verse 15, He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Meaning Jesus paid for your sins. Verse 16, For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. He just told you you have an internal inheritance that's awaiting. In order for you to get that internal inheritance, somebody has to die. You don't get the inheritance until there's a death. Well, he says there's been a death. Jesus died. He shed blood. Now you get the eternal inheritance. Verse 18. Therefore, not even the first covenant, Exodus, was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. He says the first covenant, Mosaic covenant, was inaugurated with blood. Law was given, truth was revealed, blood was shed, it was inaugurated. In the same way, the new covenant has been inaugurated. The truth has been given, blood has been shed, the inheritance is now yours. And then he makes that comment that's very important to notice. Under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Meaning when you read Leviticus, there is blood everywhere. Like, if there's a book that all the pages should be read, it's the book of Leviticus. And the, the, the writing should just be white, okay? Because it is a bloody, bloody book. When you read through it, you're like, there is blood everywhere. Morning and evening, there's blood. Priests offering sacrifices. People bringing sacrifices all day long. Then you've got the feasts and the festivals. Where there's more blood. There is blood everywhere. Why? Because without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. The wages of sin is death. The day you eat of this, you shall surely die. God wants his people to be keenly aware of the fact that their sin should be, it, it, it costs blood. And all they see all the time is a reminder that God provides a substitute. You should be the one who's bleeding out because of your sin. But in his grace, he's provided substitute under a covenant that you, by faith, approach and receive. Christ's blood ultimately is shed so that now be forgiven. So without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, which means that if you are not in Christ, blood is required of you. You will, you will pay for your sins for all of eternity under the wrath of God. But in Christ, it's already been paid, and you do not fear death any longer. Verse 28, 23, sorry. Thus it was necessary for the copies of things, of heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. 
For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. Meaning, Jesus didn't have to keep dying again and again and again and again. He doesn't do that. Now, this mention of the the cleansing of the heavenly tabernacle, let me pause here for a minute. So under under, under the old covenant, the priest would come in and he would sprinkle the tabernacle with blood. He'd just sprinkle blood on it. The reason is because the tabernacle was a picture of the heavenly place where God dwelled. And God, His house was defiled because of our sin. It's like the dust of our transgressions went all over His house. And He appoints for them to be cleansed. Well, Jesus, by shedding His blood, cleanses, as it were, heaven. So now a sinful people can be brought in through Him. So now we can stand in the presence of a holy God because sin has been atoned for and even heaven itself, as it were, has been cleansed so that now we can can enter in. Now, verse 26. But as it is, he appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So by the way, there's, I'm sorry, Rob Bell, but there's, there's no second chance. On the other side, there's not a let's see what happens. It's very clear what happens. You die, and then you are judged. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Oh, that's good. The second time, so Jesus came the first time to deal with sin. He proclaimed the gospel truth. He then died to, to, purchase, to purchase salvation for God's people. He died. He came to deal with sin. The second time when He comes... He does not come to deal with sin for His people. Why? He's already done it. It's already taken care of. Rather, He comes for those who... He comes to save those. Remember? They've already been saved. You have been saved. You are being saved. You will be saved. There it is, right? He comes to save, at His second coming, those who are eagerly waiting for Him. Eagerly waiting for Him. Do you eagerly await the return of Jesus? Is that on your mind in the morning? When you wake up, do you think, today could be the day that Jesus comes back? Does, does, that, does that guard you and guide you throughout the day? Does that, does that help you to resist sin, thinking Jesus could come back at this moment? Does it empower you in evangelism knowing that Jesus could come back at this moment and this person needs to know? Does it move you? Do you, do you think, do you, have, do you have, as it were, your heart always tilted toward the heavens hoping to see 
then roll back like a scroll and your Lord come. Is that what would characterize you? Some of us, I suspect, probably didn't think about the second coming today or yesterday or for a while. And it's between you and the Lord, you can think about this, but I, I want to propose that if that's the case, that you don't regularly think about the return of Jesus, it might be because you love this world too much. That you actually just love the comfort of this life. And you kind of like what this life gives you in a way that's inappropriate. So there's an appropriateness to enjoying good things that God gives. Okay? I had some Shake Shack today. It was glorious. Praise God. And there's a right way to enjoy that. There's also a wrong way. When, when those kinds of things all the time are what we're chasing, another, another TV, another trophy, another you know, advancement, another this, another that, or whatever, and that's what life's about, we forget about Him. And that life's actually about Him. And that what should characterize the people of God is a hope and eager expectation that Jesus, like Jesus could end this Bible study right now. That'd be awesome. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Like, that'd be a lot better ending than what I was going to give you. He's like, bam, it's done. <laughs> Let's go. Yeah, that's what we're hoping for. Do you think about it? Is that you? Do you eagerly expect it? Are you eagerly waiting for him? 10.1 For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make, per make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would have ceased to have been offered since the worshipers having been cleansed would no longer have any uh, consciousness of sins so if the Old Testament sacrifices could have fixed your problem meaning making you forget about your sins then yeah it, it would have worked but that's not what it did but in these sacrifices rather than helping you forget about them there's a reminder of sins every year for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins because they're not of the same nature not of the same value. There's human sin. There needs to be a human sacrifice. Well, what's Jesus going to do about it? He says, I'm going to take care of that. Verse 5, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. Jesus didn't come to give some blood of bulls and goats. He says, i got a body. Because there's a different kind of sacrifice that's coming. But a body you have prepared for me. It's called the incarnation. God took on flesh. So Christians believe that Jesus is the God-man. 200 200%. 200%. 100-100. Fully God, fully man. The incarnation. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written in, of me in the scroll of the book. Jesus became human to do God's will. Not my will, but thy will be done. Remember? That's why Jesus came. He got a body to do the will of God, which was to lay down his life for rebels like us.
When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, and these are offering according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. Meaning, Jesus does away with the need for old covenant sacrifices by the incarnation, because he's going to offer a better sacrifice. Verse 10, and by By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So by that will, God's will, we have been sanctified. It's it's in the perfect tense. It's a past thing, ongoing effects. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, final. Christ's sacrifice removes the sins from God's people. Verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. It is finished is done there's no more need for sacrifice for sin so those of you who are in christ your striving to please god is a good thing unless that striving is pleased to make you think that god will love you more god will not love you more he cannot love you more he loves you with all that he is in christ and we can seek to please him and that is true we do that as out of the response of having been loved rather than seeking to earn love very different. The gospel frees us from that. He sat down at the right hand of God. Now watch this. Waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Where did you so what is Jesus doing right now? He's sitting, but what's his, what's he doing? He's waiting. He's waiting to do what? To put his enemies down. Now where have we seen that word waiting before? Eagerly waiting. This is a great picture. The bride waits for the bridegroom. We're waiting eagerly for him. You ever seen a bride? Like she's there at the door. She's ready to go in. And you've got the bridegroom who stand up front and he's just about to cry and he's just there. He's, he's ready. He's nervous, whatever he's doing. And he's there and he's waiting. And you've got these two lovers, as it were, who are waiting to see each other. And the bridegroom, Christ, is waiting to come and to put down all of the enemies. All of those who mocked. Yeah, cry out to your Jesus. Let's see if he'll save you. Before he, they cut off Christians' heads. Jesus sees it. You persecute me when you touch my bride. Jesus is going to come and he's going to put them all under his foot. He's waiting to do that. And we're waiting for him to come and to deliver us. That's the, that's the picture in the Bible of the way that God relates with his people. He longs to be with them and we long to be with him. Brothers and sisters, the false god of Allah and Islam that's all around us, that concept we just talked about is so foreign. You've got this, this dark, distant, cold, unappeasable God who does not love with an affectionate love like that. The gospel is good news. 
proclaim it. Jesus is better. He's better. And he's a wonderful Savior, and he's coming for his people. Come soon, Lord Jesus. Verse 14, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This is a great picture of what's happening in the Christian life. By his offering he has perfected all those who are being sanctified. If you're a Christian, what has happened is by God's grace you've been born again and you are justified. You are perfected. You are set apart as his. Justified. To be justified means you are declared righteous. Doesn't mean you are righteous. You're not. You're actually unrighteous. But because of, your, of the faith in Christ, God now clothes, clothes you with the righteousness of Christ, takes your unrighteousness and gives it to Jesus. So now he treats you as he would treat Jesus. That's amazing. God treats you like Jesus deserves. Jesus got treated like you deserve. Like I deserve. That's justification. If you're in Christ, perfected. It's done. But now, He is transforming us. He's changing us from one degree of glory to another to look more and more like Christ. We are being sanctified. So positionally, we're in Christ like Christ. Practically, we're being made day by day, step by step, little by little, more like Christ practically. We're adopted as children of God. Now we're learning how to walk and live in the family of God. So all of these doctrines, they they just fit together of what God is doing. He sets you apart and now He makes you like Him. That's what's happening right now. So while you're waiting and you're thinking about the things of God, slowly, little by little, He's changing you. You're beholding Christ. You're weighing the cost of sin and of the things that lay before you. And it's helping you to think more like Jesus. That's what's happening even right now. There's a little miracle of him making you more like Christ. If we humbly are receiving his word. That's what he's doing. That's why sin, that's why it grieves you. It's because the Spirit's making you more like Jesus. And when you start being like, no, I want the world. It's like, what? No, you don't. Like, and it just, that's why sin bothers you. Because the Spirit's like, that's not the goal. He's the goal. Verse 15, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to, uh, to us. For after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Because of Jesus' final sacrifice, we can be completely forgiven. And where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. It's done. There's no more offerings. It's all done. It's finished. That's the good news of Christianity. Warning number four. Some would start it at verse 26. That makes sense. But verse 19 seems to transition into a thought. He's going to give you a positive of how you should respond and a negative of how you should not respond. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place, and we've just seen why there's confidence, all what Christ has done. Since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, 
Remember the same way we talked about why you say in the name of Jesus when you pray? It's because you're saying, this is the reason I'm approaching you under his authority. Well, by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. So Jesus' body was torn and then the temple was torn. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, so he tells you two things. We have confidence to enter the holy place and we have a great high priest. And he's going to tell you three things, three, things you, three ways you should respond. Let us do three things. Verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us draw near with a true heart. So because of all that that Jesus has done, your first application, draw near to God. Like, think about that. God is more eager for us to pray to Him than we are to pray. Like all this He has done so you can draw near. He's done all of this so that we can boldly come into His throne room needing, when we need grace. That's amazing. So the application, draw near. Come to Him with His promises and pray. And verse 23 let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Remember back in chapter 6, he said God's faithful. That spurs you on to faithfulness. So hold on to the confidence of your boast. Jesus is Lord and Savior. Hold on to that. Jesus has done all of this. There's no reason to throw in the garbage. No way. Cling to him. Verse 24. And let us. You notice all these so far. The us is, who's, who's us? Yeah, believers. How many believers? It's, he's talking to the church. So in Texas, we'd say y'all, okay? So this is y'all. Y'all, you guys, all right? Everybody, the whole church. This is not just to you. It is to you individual, but it's to you individual in the context of y'all. It's us. It's the church. Therefore, let us do this. And verse 24, let us consider there's something we're to do in the mind. Let us consider how to stir up one another. Now, the word stir up there, it can also be used in a negative con uh, context for like what a, a baby brother does to his sister. He tries to stir up and make her mad, try to get her boil over. You know what I'm talking about? Well, this is the opposite of that. You do whatever you can do to bring out good in other people. You consider, how can I stir up one another to love and good works? Verse 25, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Hebrews 6, those. Chapter 3 and 4, those who have gone out. But rather than neglecting to meet together, encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The picture is this. Christians know the day is drawing near. And we know because we're eagerly awaiting him. As, he's, as that day is approaching, we hold fast to our confidence. We draw near in faith together. And we meet together regularly. This is what the church does. So tomorrow it's going to happen. The church is going to gather together. And we're going to sing the word, we're going to pray the word, we're going to read the word, we're going to preach the word, we're going to see the word in the sense of like the Lord's Supper and baptism. We're going to think about the word because the word tells us about Jesus. He says, don't neglect that, getting together, because you need to be together around the word 
because it testifies of Christ. And as you're together, encourage each other. Hey, he's coming soon, amen? So, so, so when you sing, how many of y'all sing songs in your church you don't like? Don't be lying now, come on. The rest of you are liars. So quit lying, repent, okay? Here's, here's a little application for you. So it is, I've heard that there's some churches that sing songs that not everybody likes. So what you've got to know, though, is somebody in your church likes that song. And it might actually be somebody's favorite song that it warms their heart to love Jesus all the more. So if it's going to be worship, you can actually worship God by singing a song you hate because you're singing it loud to encourage the other brothers and sisters who love it. Now, if I'm Satan, what I'm going to do is I'm going to get you to think, you know what, I'm going to pick a church just to m- only by whether it caters to me and what I like. Is it the right time? Do they have the lights just right? Is there just enough smoke coming from the stage? Are these cushions just about right? Do they do all the songs in the key that I like? Like, that's from hell. It's from hell. Like, I want you to know that is fleshly and worldly. And in a city that caters to your flesh, it's going to be stirred up regularly. Everything in this town is oriented around making you love the world. The gospel makes you love God and others. So you get together and you sing those, those songs you don't like for the glory of God and for the good of that brother over there who just, I don't know why, but you love this song. Well, this one's for you, brother. And you just sing. All right? That is worship. So all this, like, I don't know what y'all are doing over here, but in the States, they have these things called worship wars where, like, people who love the organ you know, get mad at the people who love the guitar. And I mean, Jesus could be on the drums and somebody be mad. But like, it's, it's that, whatever that, that's not worship war. That's, that's worldly war. It's not worship. It's worship of something, but it's not worship of God. So in the church, we put preferences aside for the good of others and for the glory of God. That doesn't mean you can't have opinions and you can't talk about things and make suggestions. You do that in humility and love. But church is not about you. It's about Jesus. And it's about your brothers and sisters. So you do whatever you can to be an encourager of other people. Don't be a grumbler and a complainer and a divisive person. Don't be that person. You be one who seeks to build others up because the day is drawing near. The day's drawing near, and we're going to see him soon. That's verse 25, verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. This is why reading the Bible in context is very important. Oftentimes, people will come to a verse like that and it will just, it will just rock their world in a way they're like, well, I've sinned since I've been a Christian, since I've known the truth, so does that mean that I'm just expecting judgment? This is where you have to read it in the context of the whole book. So let's say I come to you. I'm a Christian. I'm a friend of yours. I've just read Hebrews 10, 
28 and, or 26 and 27, and I say to you, I think I've lost my salvation because I've sinned deliberately since I've known the truth. In less than a minute, how would you counsel me? Who wants to, who wants to take a shot at how would you counsel me? Do you want to take a shot? Do you want a microphone? Are you ready? This brother needs a microphone. He's going to counsel me. So I'm, I'm a believer in your church who reads this verse, and I think I've lost my salvation. I'm only experiencing judgment because I have, I have sinned deliberately after hearing the knowledge of the truth. If you want to phone a friend, that's okay. <laughs> you probably might want to say, let's probably start it from the beginning of the book. Good. Let's study from the beginning of the book. And uh, how would that help me? Well, it will help you to see the context and understand that people that he's talking about that deliberately sin are people who partook of the Spirit and have tasted the goodness of God, like the people in the wilderness, but then deliberately said, I know this truth. I'm not swallowing it. I'm walking away. Good. Yeah, so. very good. So the context of the book of Hebrews, good work. So the context of the book of Hebrews, the going on sinning that he's talking about here is rejecting Jesus as the Son of God who's the sacrifice for sins. So if I'm, I was of us, but I say, you know what? I actually don't think Jesus is the Son. I don't think all that sacrifice stuff that you just talked about is important. I am forsaking that and I'm going out here. If you go on sinning deliberately after hearing the knowledge of the truth, there's no sacrifice for sin over, you, over there for you. There's nothing out there for you except the wrath of God. Grace is found in the Son. So if you, if you sin, what should you do as a Christian? What do you do? You look to the Son and you say, forgive me. Thank you for shedding your blood for my sins. Forgive me. Thank you for forgiveness. That's what Christians do. Non-Christians who pretend to be Christians, they say, I'm out of here. And they just go off and they go back out here looking for something else. There's, there's, no, offering for sacri- there's no sacrifice for sins out there. There's only one sacrifice once for all that covers the judgment of God. And that's in Christ. So if, you're resp- so if you're a Christian and you've sinned, which is everybody in here, if you're a Christian, what that means is that you now look to Christ as your high priest. If that's what you do, that's what Christians do. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking here about if you've heard the truth about who Jesus is and you go on deliberately saying he's not who he says he is and I'm not submitting myself to his lordship and I do not care, I am going away then that person, there is, great, there is great judgment that awaits them. So this, by the way, is what happens in excommunication from a church. So in a congregation, people come together, and when you become a member of a church, you come and you say, this is my testimony, I believe in Lord Jesus. And the congregation, after some examination, however your church does that, so in our church we have a membership class where we teach what it, what it means to be a Christian, what it means to believe the doctrines of our church, then we sit down with a person and we interview them um, where we learn about their testimony and what they say about Christ. And if, if they say that they're a Christian and they desire to join, then praise be to God. Then we recommend it to the congregation. And then the congregation says, yes, we will receive that person as a member. 
that person who's coming as a member, what we can say, I live in Alexandria, Virginia. We can say, Alexandria, Virginia, this person right here, we'll call him Bob. If you want to know what a Christian looks like, Bob is a Christian. This is what, this is what it means to follow Jesus. Look at him. That's what it means to be a member of a church. If that person goes on sinning deliberately, so let's say he, let's say Bob's single, and Bob says, you know what, I met girl, Sarah. Sarah's not a Christian, um, but I like Sarah, and I like Sarah more than I like Jesus. So because of that, I'm going to disobey God's word, and I'm going to date a non-believer. Well, the church says, listen, we love you. And we know that Christians struggle with stuff. It's hard to be single. We want to help you to think about this. But like, you, you, can't, you can't just disobey Jesus. And if that person says, you know what? I don't care what you say. You can't tell me how to live. And I don't care what Jesus says. I'm going to do what I want to do. That makes us nervous. So then Matthew 18 says, let's go get a buddy. And then we go and we talk to him again. We say, Bob, this is a big deal. And he says, listen, now, if he says, you know what, guys, you're right. I'm sorry. I'm just struggling here. And he repents, then we bring him back. Praise be to God. That's the goal. But if he says, you know what? It's none of your business. I'm going to do what I want to do. You guys don't rule over me. And I don't care what Jesus says. I'm going to do what I want to do. We get really nervous. So then we talk to the congregation about it, Matthew chapter 18. And we tell the congregation and we say, guys, we have a big issue. Bob, who has professed Christ, well, over the past six or seven months, he has been running in a direction that's wrong. He is dating someone. He's preparing to marry somebody who's not a Christian. Um, and he's planning to marry them this weekend. Would you plead with him? If you know him, plead with him to repent of his sin and to submit to Jesus. There comes a point at some point where if he says, I don't care what Christians say, I don't care what the Bible says, I don't care what Jesus says, there comes a point when we can no longer say, Alexander, Virginia, this is what a Christian looks like. Because what Christians do is they obey Jesus. And they love to obey Jesus. It's hard, but we love to. So what church discipline is, excommunication, is whenever we say, we've given a lot of warnings, we've reached out in love, we've prayed, we've done all that we can, we are going to now remove you from membership as an act of church discipline. We're going to excommunicate you, which means we're not saying you're not a Christian. The Lord knows those who are his. We have no power to give or take away salvation. That's Roman Catholic Church. We think that's error. But we as a church can no longer say, Alexandria, Virginia, this is what a Christian looks like. So we are, we are dismembering you. We, we are, you are removed from membership. You're free to keep coming to the church. We want you to come on Sunday. There's no better place for, when I say dismember, I don't mean like actually hurt them. <laughs> like that's medieval. We're not doing that, okay? <laughs> Sorry. We're going to take them off the membership role publicly, publicly, so that everybody knows, okay? And we want you to come on Sundays because we think there's no better place for a sinner to be than under the preaching of the gospel. So please come back. But you're not welcome to take the Lord's Supper because that's for Christians. And we're not going to treat you as a Christian. Jesus says to treat you like a tax collector and Gentile, which simply means we're going to treat you like a non-Christian, which means we're not going to make it seem like your sin's okay because this stuff is real. Like there's a real hell that awaits for people who disobey Jesus and persist in that and that's what their life testifies. 
First John, that's what he's talking about. If your life is characterized by, I don't care what Jesus says, and I don't care what the church says, that's not how Christians act. And down that road is hell. Like, that, this, is, this is real stuff. So if someone goes on sinning deliberately, this is, that's kind of the response of what the church is to be doing in the midst of it. Always with the aim of, we're hoping that these warnings are going to bring them back. Now, some would say that's actually pretty unloving, don't you think? And I would say, no, actually, what's unloving is to let somebody think that rebelling against Jesus is going to lead to heaven. That is unloving. So if you ever know of me straying off, you better love me and come and get me. That's love. Otherwise, it's not love. That's actually hate. Please don't do that. Verse 28, 26, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, then no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Don't go out there, Bob, there's nothing, but a fearful expectation of the judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? That's the same word that's used of the pigs trampling the pearls uh, in Matthew chapter 7. And has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. Profane means to treat as unclean. Now when it says here by which he was sanctified, it doesn't mean that he was born again, justified, saved. It means that he was set apart as part of the community. He was among us. He sang with us. He ate communion with us. He... All of those things. He was set apart in that way. It's not talking about justification here. And has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace. He has insulted God. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So all that stuff that I walked through with how the church is supposed to act toward one another, it's an act of love to try to keep that person from running headlong into the judgment of God. That's what, that's what the aim is. Verse 32, But recall the former days, when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. Like, Bob, don't you remember... Whenever you, 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 lo- you seem to love the Lord and to follow after Him, and, and when, you know, um, Brother Brian over here, whenever the people came and they took his stuff, you went over there and you weren't afraid of being there with Him. Remember that. He's reminding them, you suffered for Christ. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. <laughs> Do you see that? Joyfully accepted the plundering of the property. ISIS, you want to come in and take my house? Listen, you can have it. It was never mine in the first place. It's, it's just not mine anyway. I've, I've, got, I've got treasures elsewhere. His name is Jesus, and I'm not denying him, no matter what you do to me. Why? Well, since you knew you had a better possession and an abiding one, you can't take this away. 
Because it's God's inheritance to give. Nobody can take it from him. If God is for us, who can be against us? Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but are of those who have faith and preserve their souls. You see what he's doing? He's making a very clear distinction between those and us. Those who are not gathering anymore because they want to go out and gather around their sin. Those who no longer look to Christ as their sacrifice. Those, but that's not us. We are not of those who shrink back. We believe by the grace of God and we are going to keep believing until we see his face. Lord, help us. Amen? That's what he's getting after here. And now what he does here in chapter 11 is he gives an example. Now, I know that since we have multiple churches here, um, some of you are going to be disappointed. Tomorrow, I'm preaching on Hebrews chapter 11 over at... Um, at, at Redeemer, so I'm not going to walk through the whole thing. But praise God, you've got the Bible in front of you, and you can study it for the rest of your life. But I'm going to tell you the, the, the point of Hebrews 11, okay? He wants you to know that there are some who have exhibited the kind of faith that receives a commendation from God to where God receives them. And that's those who, by faith, have trusted in His promises. God has made promises to his people. People are to respond by faith and to trust him, and he will reward them. The way that God rewards his people is different in this life, though. Not everybody gets the same thing. So Hebrews chapter 11, basically what it does is it blows up the prosperity gospel. Because he's, he's going to show that there's some people who, get, who become the heroes in the Bible story books. And then there's others who you'll never know their name. There's some who shut the mouths of lions, Daniel. And there's some who got eaten by lions. God doesn't reward everybody the same in this life. But what you know is that what's on the other side, that's coming. And we get God. And that reward is better than anything in this life. And that's what moved Jesus. Chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, everybody in chapter 11, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. You see that? He's the one who started it and he's the one who will finish it. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What motivated Jesus, one of the things that motivated Jesus, to not sin and to not quit, setting aside all the questions about could God sin, put that aside for a moment. What he's saying here is that why he didn't sin why he didn't quit is because there was joy on the other side of the cross. 
So he was willing to endure the cross, despise the shame, because what was on the other side of the cross was better than anything that sin could offer. And what was that? John 17. I long, Father, to share in the glory that we shared before the foundation of the world. Jesus was going to be with the Father. And that being with the Father, with all those he was bringing with him, Jesus is bringing his bride to see the Father. That's worth it for him. That was the joy that was before him. So in the same way, what is before us is the joy. No matter what happens in this life, whether it be an easy life or whether it be a very hard life or for most of us, a mixture. Whatever happens in this life, we, like the people of old, look to the promises and we trust that God is going to keep them in his perfect way, in his perfect timing. Consider him, verse 3, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. I'm not sure if you've noticed it, but he did it here in chapter 3. He, did it, he, does, he does it here. He does it in chapter 3. He does it one else. I forget where. He tells you, consider Jesus. How do I make it home? Consider Jesus. Because he's what it's about. We eagerly await his coming. Consider him. Look to him. Strip off everything that's going to keep you from being with him. What slows you down right now? What, 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 what might you hear when he says, lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run? What is it in your life right now that if you were honest and sober-minded, that you could see and say, this slows me down. Now, if you're in a rough marriage, that doesn't mean that I need to get a divorce now so that, because this person's holding me down. No, that's not what that means. There, there are some things that are in our lives that are just, that are, that are God uses to sanctify us. We'll see that more in a moment. But, but are there frivolous things or sinful habits or relationships that you know are slowing you down from doing what this author is talking about? Because listen, y'all, we are closer to seeing Jesus than when I started this. We are now nearer than when we first believed. We're now nearer to seeing Jesus than we were when we started at 7 o'clock. Like we're closer. We're closer than when I started that last sentence. Like he's coming soon. Make decisions based on 10,000 years from now. What will it be like then? Make decisions now in light of then. Because Christ is coming. Well, he says here, consider him so that you don't grow weary or faint-hearted. Verse 4, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood, but Jesus did. And then he moves in here to a section where he talks about the Father's love for his church through discipline. So between now and when we see Jesus, whether it be one second or whether it be 50 years, or 100 years, depending on how old you are. God has an agenda in your life. 
And that agenda is to make you like Jesus. And he wants to do what, and he's going to do, whatever it takes to make you like Jesus. Whatever it takes. Which, by the way, is, is probably one of the best prayers you can ever pray. Father, whatever it takes to make me more like Jesus, do that. Do that. Now, that being said, know that what comes with that can be very difficult. So I need you to know this. There is no such thing as luck or chance. There is not one thing that happens in your life that does not come through the sovereign hands of a good God who is in complete control of all things and who is not only strong and powerful, but is also good. And he uses things, both delightful and really difficult, to shape us and to refine us and to expose things in us that aren't of Christ. And he wants you to know that in the midst of that, don't grow weary and don't doubt God's love. That's what he says here in verse 5. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, he quotes here Proverbs, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. A few observations. First of all, what does he refer to us as? Sons. Three times he says, the father says, you're, you're my children. You're my children. You're my children. You need to remember that. You're my children. The second thing that we need to notice here is this idea of discipline. Okay? Discipline, and he uses several different words here, but the idea behind discipline is, um, is instruction. It, the word has to do with, with instruction, with teaching. Now, the word can be used in different contexts, so the instruction can come for different reasons. It can come because he's simply teaching you something. It can come because you've done something wrong and he is trying, he is, God doesn't try to do anything. Um, God does what he, so God does it to expose sin in you and to refine it out of you. So there's different reasons for the discipline. But he's going to discipline his children always. The third thing that we need to notice is two temptations for the sons in the midst of the discipline. Did you notice there in verse 5? What are the two things he tells you not to let happen to your heart? What's the first one? Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. Don't regard lightly. Okay? Now how might you be tempted to regard lightly the discipline of the Lord? You're going through something difficult. Listen, God loves you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I hear it. It's, it's, yeah, I hear it. Listen, this whole thing is just not that big a deal. It's fine. I'm going to be okay. I'm just going to press through. It's just, it's, you know, it's just not that big a deal. And, and you just kind of ignore. He says, don't do that. Don't regard it lightly. Take this as a serious thing. Because you can make it through a trial and not be changed. And that's a great tragedy. 
Don't take it lightly. Ask him what's going on. Put your heart on the table and say, what do you want from me, Lord? Please show me. What do you want me to learn? Or what do you want me to recall that I already have learned? What do you want me to apply that I've learned? What sin needs to be exposed? What steps do you want me to take from here? Don't regard it lightly. Take it seriously. And the second temptation is what? Don't be weary. I just can't do this anymore. I just quit. I just can't do it. I just, I just quit. I'm just tired of this. It's the same thing again and again. I don't want to do it anymore. He says, don't do that. Those are two very real temptations that are going to come. For you to think that God doesn't love you and you just want to take it lightly and this is something just to blow off or that you can't make it through this because you can by the grace of the Father who's taking you through it. Verse 7, it is for discipline that you endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Meaning there's an assumption that fathers discipline their children. Verse 8, if you are left without discipline in which all have participated, you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides, verse 9, this we have, ha- we, we have all had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Meaning, if you had an earthly father who disciplined you, it should, have leaded, it should have led to respect. Pause. Some of you had awful fathers. Some of you had abusive fathers. And when you hear this text and you think, God's my father, well, if God is anything like my father, I don't want God being my father. I want you to know that though you may have had a bad earthly father, there is a heavenly father who is good and who loves you. And in Christ, you can know what it means to have a father who will never use pain in a way that is not for your good, who will never be passive toward you, but will always affirm and teach truth to you in a way that is loving. There is a good God who is the father of his children. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? Verse 10, for they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. You see the aim? He wants you to share in holiness. So he's going to discipline you. If you are God's child, between now and when you see him, he is going to change you. That's what he does. He wants you to grow. He wants you to look more like Jesus. A picture of what that looks like. So a silversmith, what a silversmith does to get um, the, the metal to be able to be used is he takes the raw material and he puts it, uh, he puts it on, on this deal and he turns, he turns up fire underneath of it and he heats it up. And what happens as the heat gets turned up is that the metal begins to melt. And all of the dross, all that which is not silver with the impurities, they bubble to the top. And as the fire gets hotter and hotter and hotter, what happens is the metal gets more pure and the dross is burned off. And the way that a silversmith knows when the silver is done when it's pure is when he can see his reflection in it 
That's what's happening to some of you right now. The Father is turning up the heat in your life. Not because He doesn't love you, but because He wants to produce holiness in you. And there's no better aim than for you to have some dross burned off that you might be more like the Father. That's what He's doing. And for some of us, it's a lifelong thing. Some of you have things that just, they're never going to go away. But that's not because God doesn't love you. If you are in Christ, you are loved in full. Students, listen, y'all need to know that. Some of y'all right now are going through hard things, and some of y'all are going to go through really hard things. Do not doubt the love of the Father for His children. Look to Him. Verse 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. That's an understatement. But, but, later, on the other side, a little further down the road, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Brothers and sisters, I've been through some, 2007 was a very hard year for me. It was, it was the year, oh, I call it the year of the anvil, which God put me on the anvil and he disciplined me because he loved me. There was things that needed to go in my life. And he broke me in ways that I never thought a human could be broken. And I, I remember there was a point when I was laid on the floor, it was about nine months in, and I was just, I, couldn't, I didn't even have any more tears to cry. And I just said, God, I surrender. Like, I've confessed every sin I can think to confess. I've apologized to every person I could apologize. I feel like I've done everything you've asked me to do. Like, I'm, you win. And I didn't hear any kind of audible voice, but there was this, there's this, this peace that came in the days after that, that, that assured that, that this, all of it was for my good. That the things that were being broken in me needed to go. Or otherwise my life was going to be ruined. And that doesn't mean that on this side of it, that listen, I've got no struggles. That's not true. I'm still, I still struggle. But as I do, I'm reminded that in the midst of it, there's a peace that the Father is aiming to produce in His people. He's training us to be like Him. Trust Him. I would never want to go through 2007 again. But I would not trade it for the world. All the gold from here to the moon. You could, I would not trade 2007 because of the way that I learned to love the more the Lord more out of it. The trial that you're in right now or the one that's coming or the one that you just came out of, you've got to trust that God is working for your good. Therefore, verse 12, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be out of joint but be healed, restored. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. You see that? There's a holiness that's required. That's why he does what he does so we can share in his holiness. He is perfecting us. 
Verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. So you have a responsibility for one another. Make sure nobody's falling short. We did this yesterday, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Esau did not want the father. He wanted the father's stuff. He didn't want to know God. He didn't want God He wanted the stuff. And that's why he wept. Worldly sorrow does not lead to life. It leads to death. Because it's all about self. A God, grace produced. Godly sorrow, that's what leads to life. So plead that God would help you to have that kind of sorrow over your sin. And then he lifts your eyes to what inheritance you don't want to throw away. Esau threw his away. Don't do what he did. Look to this. For you have not come to what may be touched, Mount Sinai, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, it was so terrifying a sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. That's a picture of Mount Sinai. He says, you don't come to God like that anymore, where he's this burning fire that you can't approach uh, or you're going to die in your sins. But rather, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, everybody in Hebrews 11, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Remember Abel, when he was killed by his brother Cain, God said, your brother's blood cries out, to me from the ground. What was it crying out for? Justice. Jesus' blood speaks a better word. Mercy. Mercy. You don't get justice. You get mercy. You don't want God to be fair to you. You want God to treat you with mercy. And He can do that because He was just on Jesus. See that you do not refuse. Fifth and final warning. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we neglect him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth. But now, so when Mount Sinai, when God spoke and gave the law, it shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Meaning, When God spoke at Mount Sinai, it shook the earth. Well, there's a day coming when God's going to return and he's going to shake the whole thing. And he's going to set everything right. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of all things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful. Are you grateful for what has happened to you in Christ? Be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. 
For God is a consuming fire. God is a consuming fire that now we don't tremble in fear before in the sense that we want to run away, but He's a consuming fire that now because of Christ's work has become beautiful to us. That we revere and we're in awe of. In in the same way of like my my son, five-year-old son, we went to the beach a couple months ago to the ocean. And I was, I was telling him about the ocean. The ocean's beautiful. It's big. The waves are beautiful. It's inviting. It's nice to swim in and this and everything. But there's also a very real res- sense in which it's very much bigger than you. And it's stronger than you. And the way that we relate to it is with a right kind of fear. One that is inviting and says, yes, come and enjoy. But also that produces humility and reverence before, in us before it. That's the kind of thing, the posture that we're to have before God, where we draw near and enjoy, but yet remain humble and in awe of Him. He says, let us offer to God acceptable worship. Well, what does that worship look like? Well, chapter 13, let brotherly love continue. Love each other like a family. Verse 2, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels without knowing it. Be hospitable, particularly in this context, to strangers who would come who would be missionaries. So thank you for your hospitality to me. I appreciate that. I am not an angel. Verse 3, remember that those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you are in the body, Pray for the persecuted church. Think about what it's like right now to be in a labor camp in North Korea. On my phone, I have weather for different places around the world, and I have it for North Korea. And the reason is that I can look and see how cold it is and imagine what it would be like for it to be that cold with no blankets, no heaters, and for Christians who are suffering in that way and to think about what that would be like and to pray God, and, and, and ask God to help me to feel that so we can think about what that would be like. Pray for the persecuted church because they're part of the body and when one part suffers, the whole part suffers. Verse 4, let marriage be held in high honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. God says, marriage is from me. Nobody gets to redefine it. It's my institution. It's one man, one woman for life. That's what God says it is. People can change opinions on that, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't change the institution. That's why in our country, there's no such thing as same-sex marriage. There's just not, because marriage is a man and a woman. That's what God says it is. And he says it's to be held in high honor. And one of the ways you do that is through sexual purity, both before you're married, by not defiling the marriage bed through sexual immorality, and after you're married, by staying faithful to your vows and not committing adultery. You keep that marriage bed pure because marriage is important because it's a picture of the gospel. Jesus the bride, groom, church the bride. It's to be a picture of that. Guard it, honor it. Verse 5, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Why? For he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. 
so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. Be content with what you have. Why? Because you have God. What else do you need? You don't need to scurry about trying to get more stuff. That discontentment that's in you, make sure it's in submission to the love and contentment that's in Christ. Verse 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. We have lots of different churches represented here. I encourage you to make sure that you are in a congregation where you know your leaders are speaking the word of God to you. And as they seek to live it out. So pastors, live better than you preach. Live better than you preach. Show obedience to the word. Don't just preach about it. The congregation is to look to their leaders and be able to see a model, not a perfect one, but one who understands the gospel, that is able to say, hey, listen, I'm struggling, pray for me. And we have hope that God will supply strength because that's what he does. The gospel's not just for non-Christians, it's for Christians as well. We never stop being weak, broken, needy people in need of God's grace. Pastors model that. Look for that in your leaders. Imitate their faith. Jesus Christ, when they fail, remember, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. He never changes. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Do you know what that means for your heart to be strengthened by grace? This whole book is about grace. It's about God's grace to you in Christ, that it's finished. Let your heart find strength there remembering the work that's finished and the return of our Lord that's coming soon. Not seeking to earn God's favor, but resting in the favor that's given in Christ. Let your heart be strengthened. Not by foods which have benefited those who devoted to them. Meaning, in the Jewish religion, there are certain foods that you don't eat and people were being tempted to find righteousness in that. Because I don't do this certain thing, that God's going to approve of me more. He says, that's not where it comes from. It comes from grace. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. The bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sins are burned outside the camp. Because those animals which were clean, well, now they become consumed and thrown outside the camp as if they were unclean. Verse 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate. Remember, Jesus was led outside the city, and there he hung on a cross, which um, Deuteronomy says, cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. Jesus became cursed and unclean outside the camp, so that we who were outside the camp because of our uncleanness could be brought in. We could be brought into Christ. But that being brought into Christ is going to cost us. So he's going to tell us here, go outside with him. Verse 12, or verse 13. Therefore, let us go out to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. If they hated the master, how much more the servants? So, brothers and sisters, do not think it's strange when fiery trials come upon you. First Peter. 
Verse 14, For we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through Him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Are you generous with what you have? Because remember, what you have is not yours anyway. It's God's. He gives it to you so that you can share with others. So that others can see the grace that's given. Verse 17, Obey your leaders and submit to them. So that's a command from God for you to be in a local church where you will obey and submit to your leaders as they teach the word of God correctly. For, pastors, listen to this, for they, the leaders, are keeping watch over your souls as those who will give an account. If you're a pastor, hear this. You will give an account for the way that you loved the church that Jesus purchased with his own blood. Love the sheep. Care for the sheep. Feed them true things. Do not fear them, but speak truth to them in love. Be tender with them. Be gracious with them. Be truthful with them. Because there is a day coming when Jesus will say, how did you treat my bride? If you've been harsh with the sheep, repent and ask for their forgiveness. If you've been neglectful or cowardly, Repent and ask for forgiveness. Let them do this, now everybody else, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. What that means is don't make your pastor's life miserable. That's what it means. Don't be a grumbling, groaning sheep. Don't be a divisive sheep. Don't be always complaining and griping. Because you know why? It's not actually going to be to your advantage. Make your pastor's job easier by being a blessing to him and to the congregation. That actually makes it a lot easier for the pastors, and it will be for you. Verse 18, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. We'll read 20 through 21 to conclude, but notice how he ends here in verse 22. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. I would have liked to have heard more. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released. Timothy was in jail. A cool study, by the way, is Timothy. Timothy's always showing up, and dude is always being faithful. It's really encouraging. Verse 24. Greet all your leaders... And all the saints, those who come from Italy, send you greetings. This is why we think it was probably somewhere potentially in Rome. People from their church were there where the author was and sending word back to them. Grace be with you all. I'm going to read 20 through 21 as the benediction. I'll pray for us and then I'm happy to stick around and take questions. Now may the God of peace who brought, a, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory, glory forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray for us. 
Father, we come before you and we thank you for Jesus. And we come in his name and we confess that he is the Lord and the Savior and the Son whose blood was shed once for all and that by that blood we come now and we say thank you with grateful hearts and we pray you would make us all the more grateful. We pray that you would cultivate in us an eagerness, an eager expectation for the revealing of of your Son. Father, would you send the Son soon? And Father, would you help us between now and then to love you, to hate sin, to love one another, to worship you as you are worthy. God, might you not let one among us fall away. Would you guard us and keep us for your glory? And might you use us as we go back to our churches to be a blessing, to love others and help others. Give us strength. Help us to not just have learned some things, but help us to become worshipers in spirit and truth. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. God bless you. Thank you. And uh, I'll stick up here for any questions.